This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Hey, it's Amna. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may be different by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with all the latest by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Amna Nawaz from the PBS NewsHour. All rise. The latest news roundup is now in session. Mark your calendars. Former President Donald Trump will face his first criminal trial in March. And in Georgia, a hearing is underway that could derail the election subversion case against Donald Trump and others. And at any moment, the judge who presided over the $370 million civil fraud case against the Republican frontrunner is expected to issue his verdict. We also need to talk about a big win. This is the message to our friends running the Congress these days. Stop running around for Trump and start running the country. And a big return. How do you go on TikTok and end up looking older? (laughs) With us this week is Jeff Mason. Jeff is White House correspondent for Reuters. Jeff, it's great to have you back. Great to be with you. Also with us, Benji Sarlin is Washington Bureau Chief at Semaphore. Benji, nice to have you here. Great to be here. And with me here in studio is Laura Barone-Lopez. Laura is White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour, which also makes her my colleague. Lucky me. Hi, Laura. (laughs) Hi. All right. Not for the first time, we need to now start in court. Jury selection in Donald Trump's first criminal trial will begin on March 25th. On Thursday, New York Judge Juan Manuel Merchan rejected Trump's request to delay the trial. So, Laura, the former president is accused of falsifying his business records to cover up hush money payments to adult film stars during the 2016 election. How has Mr. Trump responded to this and what have we heard from the Manhattan District Attorney? Well, uh, former President Trump has responded true to form, which is essentially to call the entire proceeding rigged. And after, you know, finding out that he he was going to go to trial in in late March, uh, the former president repeatedly was saying that this was uh, a rigged deal, that it was ridiculous, that he was going to have to stay there and be there uh, throughout the campaign uh, because, you know, even though he probably has the nominee, so uh, the nomination sewed up, uh, he is going to have to be at these trials, including this one, uh, which will be the first one to start out of all of them, it looks like. Benji, speaking of all the other trials that Mr. Trump is currently facing, where does this one fit sort of in legal jeopardy and other issues with those other cases and other trials that are that are playing out? It's definitely the bottom of the cases in terms of the legal jeopardy he faces and that even if he's convicted, these are much less serious crimes. They get to um, politically as well, you know, less important aspects of Trumpism versus core questions, kind of like whether he overturned an election and whether that's legal and legitimate and what that says about the country and democracy. 
but it is going first, most likely. Uh, you know, there is now a a March date set, and the other cases that are seen as more serious are still very much um, up in the air. You know, May 20th is the tentative date for the classified documents case, which looks quite serious, but there's also little expectation it will happen by then. They've been dealing with various pretrial motions. The federal case about overturning the election is held up until the Supreme Court weighs in uh, on some questions around it, which, depending on how they long long they take, could push it to summer or even the fall, assuming Trump loses. And in Georgia, you know, which is its own story this week, the district attorney there has sought to hold a trial in August, but there's lots of potential for delays there as well. So it's at least possible that this New York case is the only one that happens before the election, even though it's really gotten far less attention than the other cases. So Jeff, on that note, regardless of the outcome of this case, Because of its timing, do you see it doing any potential harm to Mr. Trump politically? (laughs) I laugh in part because (laughs) virtually everything that normally you would say, yes, that will hurt him politically, ends up doing exactly the opposite. So I'm not going to opine either way other than to say what could hurt him is if, if, if the case goes against him, it's never a good thing to have on your ledger when you're running for president to say you've been convicted of a crime. So, but that said, former President Trump has very successfully gotten his supporters to see virtually every legal charge against him and every accusation that is not a legal charge against him but that he sees as negative or derogatory to be viewed as um, a witch hunt or to be viewed as unfairly coming after him. And we've seen a a tangible result of that effort in his fundraising and in his polling. So in general, I would say it's it's not largely a good thing, and yet he is usually very successful politically in turning it into one. If I could just add, Amna, I mean, there is polling, though, that shows, to Jeff's point about not it not being great to have uh, the label of convicted on your ledger, uh, there is polling that shows that there's a significant portion of Americans and there's a significant portion of Republicans, you know, uh, about 20 to 30 percent of Republicans who say that if Trump is convicted of a crime, they don't think that they can support him, uh, that they wouldn't necessarily support him. And I've talked to Republican strategists in swing states who say that if he is convicted of at least one crime, that it's going to significantly hurt not just him, but Mm -hmm. Republicans down ballot. Well, as Benji mentioned, when you look ahead at the calendar, one trial date that's already postponed this spring was for that special counsel's case against the former president for plotting to overturn the 2020 election. That trial is on hold while the Supreme Court considers Trump's argument that he is immune from prosecution. On Wednesday, DOJ special counsel Jack Smith urged the Supreme Court to make a quick decision and allow the trial to proceed. Jeff, talk to us about that argument. Why is Smith saying that this needs to be very quickly decided? Well, the the argument that he made is that a, a delay in in getting these charges uh, addressed would, what he said, quote, frustrate the public interest in a speedy and fair verdict. And that frustration would be because of the time frame in which this is happening and the the political context of f- former President Trump running for president again. And in general, because of the charges that are leveled against him, that this is somebody who um, is alleged to have have tried to to turn over the results of the 2020 election. So Jack Smith is arguing if this ends up something that the Supreme Court wants to take on, 
they should decide quickly because of, of all the things on their, on their ledger, to use that word again, this one is really important to get done quickly. And Benji, is there any indication that the Supreme Court will move quickly on this? Well, everyone's waiting to hear from them. They have a lot of options here. They could in- decide not to hear this case at all and just let a, uh, you know, a circuit court decision stand and move on. And or alternately, they can give a quick response. They could take their mo- months making it up. So everyone is very much waiting to find out. We really do not know their internal thinking on this at all. Meanwhile, in Georgia, it is day two of a hearing that could see Fulton County's District Attorney Fonnie Willis disqualified from the election racketeering case she brought against former President Trump and his allies. The motion is based on allegations that Fonnie Willis financially benefited from a personal relationship with her lead prosecutor, Nathan Wade. Donald Trump and his co-defendants are seeking to get the entire case dismissed. So, Laura, we saw yesterday Fonnie Willis take the stand herself. How would you describe those proceedings and what were your takeaways? <laughs> well, um, it was a very combative. It was very combative. I, I mean, Fonnie Willis is highly experienced prosecutor. You know, at times you could tell she was trying to provoke the de- defense attorneys. Um, and at times she was scolded by the judge. And at multiple times they were, the defense attorneys were scolded by the judge for veering off of what he deemed was material questioning and sticking to the topic at hand. I mean, bottom line here, there was, um, in her testimony, Fonnie Willis, I thought, you know, really tried to get the defense attorneys on their back foot uh, she one quote that I thought stood out was she she was telling them, you're confused. You think I'm on trial. These people are on trial for trying to steal an election in 2020, talking about the co-defendants that have brought this motion against her to get her dismissed. And, you know, when when we're talking about what they're accusing her of, which is essentially corruption and impropriety and benefiting from this financially, you know, taking cruises um, uh, off of the money that Nathan Wade was making uh, from the state as he was working on this case with her, we're talking about not vast amounts of money. We're talking about small amounts of money. And she also made clear in her testimony, you know, that she's this independent woman who takes care of herself, who always would try to pay half, try to pay him back. Did they account for every dollar? No. But, um, you know, also I think the key point here, Amna, is that the likelihood of her getting dismissed, I do think is slim. Uh, And then None of this is material to the actual criminal case against Donald Trump and his co-defendants. You know, the the facts and the charges of that case still stand. um, And this doesn't really touch any of that. And so the idea that that Donald Trump or his co-defendants could get uh, the entire case dismissed is basically not going to happen. Meanwhile, Jeff, back to New York, what we're watching for today and that verdict that's expected from New York State Judge Arthur Angeron. What is it we're waiting to hear from him? So this is in a uh, $370 million civil fraud case. He has already ruled that President Trump and his business committed fraud. Uh, what we really are expecting to hear today is more details on that and uh, about penalties and what it will mean for his business going forward. All right, more to come. We'll be back with the week's biggest headlines in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with its original podcast on investing. 
Each week, you'll get thoughtful, in-depth analysis of both the stock and the bond markets. Listen today and subscribe at schwab.com slash oninvesting or wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. The Capital One Venture X business card has no preset spending limit, so the card's purchasing power can adapt to meet business needs. Plus, the card earns unlimited double miles on every purchase, so the more a business spends, the more miles earned. And when traveling, the VentureX business card grants access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The VentureX business card, what's in your wallet? Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash business. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bluehost, introducing Wondersuite. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few questions and get a unique, customizable WordPress website or store right away. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Let's turn now to the investigation into Hunter Biden. News broke late on Thursday from the special counsel investigating Hunter Biden. David Weiss charged that an FBI informant on two counts, rather he was charged on two counts, for allegedly feeding the Bureau false information about President Biden and his son during the 2020 presidential election. So, Laura, this has been seen as a setback for Republicans who use those allegations in their push to impeach President Biden. What do we know about the charges? Yeah. So essentially, I mean, this uh, Alexander Smirnoff, this FBI informant, he'd been an FBI informant for years, actually, for decades. Uh, and he essentially came to the FBI and to- told them that then Vice President Joe Biden, his son Hunter Biden, uh, took bribes from a Ukrainian en- energy firm, Burisma. Um, so that way that they would, you know, essentially do each other's bidding and help Burisma with uh, a Ukrainian prosecutor. Uh, now, mind you, this Ukrainian prosecutor, Republicans and Democrats across the board wanted him out. Um, and so, yes, did then Vice President Joe Biden push to have him ousted? Yes. But this FBI informant now comes out this this DOJ charge just yesterday, essentially saying that all of that information, everything that that informant told the FBI was a lie. He lied to them repeatedly, despite the FBI telling him when you are an informant, you need to be telling us the truth. And the reason that this is significant, Amina, is because of the fact that Republicans for more than a year have been using this FBI informant and The allegations that he filed to the FBI on this raw, you're going to hear Republicans say a lot, this 1023 form. Mm -hmm. That is just when an informant sends in their raw, unverified, mind you, unverified allegations. And Republicans for a year had been holding up this form, you know, which they've read. They saw it. Uh, The FBI gave them access to it. The DOJ gave them access to it. Um, And this informant as this credible uh, source that proved that Joe Biden was involved in a bribery scheme with his son. And now the DOJ is saying that's false. I mean, just last month, House uh, Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan said on Fox that this FBI informant's information alleging this bribe that Joe Biden took was the heart of the matter Mm -hmm. for their impeachment inquiry. It was, quote, the most corroborating evidence we have is this 1023 form from this confidential human source. And now that's basically evaporated. And so, I mean, the impeachment inquiry was already limping along. They were starting to see more and more swing 
district Republicans get cold feet about even pushing this to a vote. So this is going to be a pretty big blow, despite the fact that House Republicans want to say that it isn't, that they're going to keep moving on with this impeachment inquiry. We'll see indeed if it does move on. Let's head now to Congress, though. After failing to garner enough votes last week, House Republicans succeeded in impeaching Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on Tuesday. Three Republicans voted with Democrats against the measure, including Colorado's Ken Buck. I prosecuted for 25 years. I know what a high crime and misdemeanor uh, are, and I know uh, that this doesn't qualify. This is a policy difference. Um, You you can uh, try to put lipstick on this pig. It is still a pig, and this is a a terrible impeachment. It sets a terrible precedent. The first impeachment of of Donald Trump was a bad impeachment, and we've got to stop this in in this body or we are going to lose our our, our credibility with the further lose our credibility with the American public. That was Colorado Republican Ken Buck speaking to CNN after the vote on Tuesday. Republicans are upset over how Mayorkas handled an influx of migrants at the southern border. In a statement on Tuesday, House Speaker Mike Johnson said Mayorkas deserved to be impeached because, quote, this secretary refuses to do the job that the Senate confirmed him to do. President Biden called the impeachment a, quote, blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship in a statement on Tuesday night. So, Jeff, what exactly are Republicans alleged? that Mayorkas's high crimes and misdemeanors were, which is the constitutional bar for impeaching officials. Well, it's good that you emphasize that because that's what the congressman from my home state of Colorado um, was just saying is a bar that they did not meet. The, the basics of what they're alleging that he, that he did is, is not follow the law in, in, or not enforce the law in policing the, the U.S. border. And the border, of course, is a very big political issue for both Democrats and Republicans, but especially for Republicans and especially for former President Donald Trump as he uh, is campaigning to become the presidential uh, nominee for the Republican Party again. So it is, it is, this has been their vehicle for saying that Mayorkas and more broadly the Biden administration, in their view, have not been following the laws or enforcing the laws um, for immigration and the border. Benji, this should head to the Senate next. We'll wait to see how they respond. But what have we been hearing so far about, especially from Senate Republicans, how they're reacting to their House colleagues on this impeachment effort? Well, first of all, this impeachment has no chance of conviction. Um, it's just not going to happen. You need two-thirds. But also, in addition, while House Republicans you know, were slightly divided over this impeachment, it's had very little enthusiasm among Senate Republicans. You've already seen kind of a dismissive attitude from the start. So they're also less likely to get as excited about this. Now, expect fewer fireworks procedurally, too, than a presidential impeachment. Uh, Democrats still have to figure out how to handle this. It's possible they have the votes to outright dismiss it, something that has not been ruled out yet. But even if they don't, uh, it's not like a presidential impeachment where the Senate has to drop everything and have Chief Justice Roberts come and preside over a trial. Uh, They can have a committee essentially look at this uh, in hearings while the Senate goes about their business elsewhere and then present a final report. The person presiding over it would be the Senate uh, pro tempore, Patty Murray. So I would expect a lot less uh, visibility for an impeachment trial compared to the two impeachment trials we saw uh, involving former President Trump. Meanwhile, in the other direction, the Senate this week passed a $95 billion aid package for Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. That legislation will now head to the House. Jeff, they failed to pass a border bill last week that also included this aid. So why was the Senate successful this time? 
Well, they were successful this time because that border piece, the immigration piece, was stripped out of it. And it ended up being a 70 to 29 vote in favor of this aid, billions and billions of dollars for Ukraine, uh, Israel, and, and other allies. But it doesn't really matter in some sense because it's going to the House where Speaker um, Johnson is unlikely to bring it to the floor for a vote. I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. I just mean it, it doesn't, it, it's not the big success that Democrats were calling it because it is unlikely to get uh, passed in the House and unlikely to end up on President Biden's desk. A fact that he uh, made a big point of arguing against this week, uh, he came out and made a statement in the White House saying how important it was for the House to do it and not to let a small minority of MAGA Republicans uh, prevent this from, from getting, getting House passage. Because the truth is, if it did end up being put up for a vote, there are probably enough votes in the House to make it law. Yeah, to Jeff's point, there are House Republicans that have admitted themselves that if this were actually put on the floor, this package for Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, uh, and Taiwan, that that it would have enough votes to pass. And so that's the issue here, Amna, is that House Speaker Mike Johnson isn't putting it on the floor, not because it doesn't have the votes. He's not putting it on the floor because it could cost him his speakership because of this faction that has essentially for the entire Congress – taken over. And really, it's the whole reason Kevin McCarthy is gone. It's the reason Mike Johnson is afraid for his job. And, um, you know, they there is something that could be done here that is kind of getting whispered about. The likelihood of it is, um, is hard to tell, but there are a number of Democrats and some Senate Republicans talking to uh, House counterparts about a discharge petition. Mm-hmm. And what that would do is essentially... Give take the floor away from Mike Johnson for this moment. You have to get enough signatures on board, so it can't just be you kind of saying verbally out loud that you support voting for this. Republicans would have to sign on in order for them to be able to bring this UK- Ukraine aid package to the floor. And it could happen because of the fact that so many swing district Republicans are starting to get really upset that nothing is moving through the House. And Laura, we should understand your House Republicans were already operating with a very slim majority, the one that helped them get Secretary Mayorkas impeached. That has now gotten even slimmer, right? The New York district that was responsible for electing Republican George Santos in 2022 chose a Democrat this time around, a man named Tom Suozzi, who won Tuesday's special election to replace Santos, who was expelled from office last year. Tell us about that election. What swayed voters Suozzi's way? Well, this uh, uh, Tom Suozzi has name recognition. He... he uh Arguably, the only reason that Republicans flipped that district was because he didn't run for re-election last go-around, and George Santos was able to win the seat. But he really made this argument, Omna, about immigration, but it wasn't just hardline immigration. It wasn't just secure the border. Uh, you know, Swazi is considered a more moderate Democrat. Um, but he also, in his immigration argument, said that that Democrats, that the U.S. needed to provide a pathway to citizenship for people um, who are here working hard, you know, abiding by the rules and the laws of the land. And that was his main argument. And it appeared, you know, to be one that worked. He also aggressively hammered Republicans uh, following President Biden's lead a bit there, but aggressively hammered Republicans on the fact that they abandoned the border negotiation deal that uh, many of them had initially said that they wanted with Democrats. 
All right, next, I want to get to some crossed words between President Biden and his likely Republican rival this week and some choice words from Nikki Haley, also targeting Trump. Here's President Biden speaking to reporters on Wednesday. No other president in our history has ever bowed down to a Russian dictator. Let me say this as clearly as I can. I never will. For God's sake, it's dumb, it's shameful, it's dangerous, it's un-American. President Biden attacked Donald Trump for his recent remarks on NATO and for encouraging House Republicans to kill a bill that would send aid to Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. Benji, Trump's hostility toward NATO allies isn't new, but what did he say this time? Yeah, as you mentioned, Trump has been saying variations of the idea that he would only defend uh, NATO members from an attack by Russia if he felt that they had been, you know, uh, carrying their weight in terms of paying for defense spending. He said this in his 2016 campaign. It got a lot of attention then. It was much debated. Uh, the the line that took it over to a new to a new level was that he said he would actively encourage Russia to do whatever the hell they wanted, as he put it, to a NATO ally if he decided they had not been paying their dues. And there is no literal dues. He means a defense spending target. Uh, That caused a lot more consternation, including at least partly within his own party. You know, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who has been much more of a Russia hawk today and, you know, in the past was was somewhat critical. Um, So the other question this gets to is people are very unsure what Trump would do about NATO in a second term. Um, Many of his defenders who have more kind of traditional uh, positions on on Russia within the party pointed to the fact that, you know, when you got past Trump's rhetoric, his policy was not so different towards Russia from what you might expect from, from a Republican. But many of the Republicans who implemented that policy were people like Mike Pence or Jim Mattis or John Kelly or John Bolton. People are all, you know, called deep state traitors by, by Trump and his fans now, and it's unlikely they would have the same kind of power or relationship uh, in a second term. Uh, So if he wins, it's a huge question mark exactly what he would do on this issue. Well, GOP presidential hopeful Nikki Haley also stepped up her attack on the former president. This week, she called his remarks about NATO, quote, unhinged. And given his recent personal attacks on her husband, who's currently serving in Djibouti with the Army National Guard, South Carolina's former governor had this to say. If you don't know the sacrifice that they go through, why should I, as a military spouse and all our military families, trust you to know you're going to keep them out of harm's way? I mean, the reality is he's never been anywhere near a military uniform. He's never had to sleep on the ground. He's never known how to sacrifice. And the most harm he's ever possibly had is getting hit by a golf ball when he's sitting in a golf cart. Jeff, previous polling has suggested that the veteran community leans Republican. Of course, it is not a monolith. But how does going after someone who's active in the military help former President Trump? It's impossible to answer that question other than to say what I said earlier, which is a lot of the things that he says just resonate with with voters in his base. But I think your point is right uh, with regard to veterans that um, this is the type of thing that could backfire. I mean, his comments about former Senator um, John McCain not being a war hero ended up not backfiring for him. So you just never know. But this is something that um, a good chunk of, as you say, Republican-leaning voters are probably not going to be happy to hear. 
Well, I do want to turn to the Super Bowl because it did set a record, a new viewership record, more than 200 million people tuning in as the Kansas City Chiefs beat the San Francisco 49ers in overtime in that match. First and goal. Mahomes flings it. It's there! Hartman! Jackpot! Kansas City! Of course, joy turned to tragedy when in Kansas City, Missouri, on Wednesday at the Chiefs' victory parade, a mass shooting the police are now investigating that killed one woman and injured more than 20 other attendees. Jeff, what else do we know about that shooting right now? What we know, according to police, is that this was a quarrel amongst people who were attending that and not, at least at this point, they've concluded connected to domestic terrorism. Two teenagers are in custody and uh, charges are being looked at. Let's head to a quick break. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's get back to the roundup and turn now to the return of someone millions describe as a TV great. John Stewart returned to The Daily Show host chair on Monday. Stewart left the late-night political comedy show in 2015, but he's back now for a weekly stint leading up to the 2024 election. The Super Bowl was on Sunday, and the president was offered a chance, as per tradition, to do an interview where millions and millions of people could see him competently and clearly lay out his 2024 agenda. Or he could just turn that down and do what this is. Game or halftime show? Game. Jason Kelsey or Travis Kelsey? Mama Kelsey. I say she makes great chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> Fire everyone. <laughs> everyone. How do you go on TikTok and end up looking older? Stewart brought nearly 930,000 viewers with him for his return to the Daily Show desk, according to Nielsen Ratings. It's the highest ratings the show has seen since 2018. Benji, just remind us here, what kind of influence has this show, The Daily Show, had on Americans over the years? It's been huge. Um, I'm about to turn 39, so I'm kind of the peak Jon Stewart Daily Show audience. <laughs> he was just this massive deal when I was in high school and college, and it it used to be considered novel at the time that a comedian would be this trusted news source. Now that seems like 
quaint, you know, one of his TV competitors became president and is running again. Another comedian from the same time, Joe Rogan, is the most influential podcaster. The president of Ukraine is a comic actor who played the president before he ran. Um, but his legacy is very contested. You know, on the right, critics argue that he made left-wing politics in particular a lot more smug. You know, he popularized a certain kind of tone that existed before but kind of exploded afterwards where people who disagree with you could be dismissed as stupid or corrupt or beneath debate. And on the left, critics argued that he did not use his platform to really make change so much as breed cynicism. He was very good at making fun of the excesses of the media, of politicians, of calling out hypocrisy, but it wasn't always clear where to direct that energy. So the big example was he held a rally right before the 2010 midterms called the Rally to Restore Sanity in Washington, which was kind of a parody of these Tea Party rallies. And I covered it as a reporter. And a lot of people were kind of confused when they attended it because many Democrats were expecting it to be the big moment. He says, all these terrible things I've been telling you about, all this insanity, you need to go out, think of that and vote to stop this rising right wing movement. And instead, he just said the moral of the rally was everyone needs to be less mad at each other. <laughs> And, you know, it's a nice enough message, but people are kind of wondering, like, why did we all gather and travel across the country to say that days before an election that ended up being incredibly consequential historically? So he, he has a very contested legacy, I'd say, that the people are discussing now that he's back. Well, Jeff, he has been gone for a minute, right? This will be Stewart's first election back in the host chair. What dynamic do you think this brings to election coverage or, or even just politics more broadly? Well, I would answer that by adding to Benji's eloquent analysis uh, in saying that I think Jon Stewart has sort of come to the other edge now with at least his first show this week and saying everyone should be more mad uh, about everything and at both the Democrats and the Republicans. He did not spare the president in his, in his remarks. He certainly had lots of, of criticism for the former president as well. But in terms of uh, the, the overall impact, Amna, to your question, uh, I think that he will, based on his history, engage younger voters, make people think, but not give anyone a free pass. And, you know, having that kind of an impact in the way that he does, because his criticism and his voice gets into the cultural zeitgeist, can have an impact on not only voters, but potentially on um, the candidates who are, who are targeted. With a little laughter along the way, right? And who doesn't need more of that? I do want to turn now to some health news. The Centers for Disease Control is considering new guidelines that would drop the five-day isolation rule for people who test positive for COVID. Instead, people would be advised to return to work or school after being fever-free for 24 hours. Benji, what does this potential change in guidelines say about where we are with COVID right now four years after the pandemic started? Well, I had a very personal experience with exactly what this means because <laughs> I got COVID this month. And the way things work under guidelines now is it meant because I have children, it was basically losing two weeks of work. You know, first I was sick and in isolation. And then when the rest of the family got it, you know, they couldn't go to kids couldn't go to school. So we didn't have child care. And it's just the current guidelines are very disruptive that way. So this is an acknowledgement that, one, because they're disruptive, realistically, a lot of people are just not following them. They're not testing in the first place for COVID. In fact, they might be reluctant because they're worried about, for example, costing themselves two straight weeks of work, even if potentially they don't even have symptoms. Um, this sort of reflects a different environment now where 
you know, the vast majority of people in the country have some immunity against COVID, either through vaccines or boosters or because they've gotten it once or repeatedly. Uh, and it is being treated more and more like a regular illness. Now, obviously, this is a heavily controversial change. There's plenty of public health experts who will say nothing about the virus change. It's still not good to walk around while you are potentially even likely contagious. Uh, but it definitely reflects uh, changes in how the country responds to COVID at this point. And it's also worth noting, I think, that, you know, according to the CDC, still about a thousand people each week are are dying of COVID-related causes in the U.S. We'll monitor the guidelines and see what happens next. Let's turn now to Texas where more than 2 million people have lost Medicaid coverage in less than a year. That's according to new data from the Texas Health and Human Services Commission. Their coverage was dropped after the federal government lifted pandemic-era protections last April, and that is the most of any state. So, Laura, help us understand why are people losing that Medicaid coverage, not just in in Texas, but Mm -hmm. around the country? Yeah, I mean, so far... Uh, Since last April, as you said, Amna, about more than 15 million people have lost Medicaid coverage. And it's it's twofold. I mean, essentially, during the pandemic, there was a provision passed by Congress and signed into law that allowed for continuous enrollment. So for three years, uh, people who were signed up for Medicaid, their their enrollment was just renewed without them having to do anything. And then that was ended. Uh, And so now we're seeing the results of that continuous enrollment end, which is that people are no longer um, just automatically being signed up again. It doesn't mean that they're no longer eligible. And the other thing that is happening here is also the procedural paperwork. And that some states have really bad systems. They're not very good uh, with tech and with allowing um, people to re-enroll and make sure that they're filling out that necessary paperwork. So that's happening as well. Inside of this Omna, I think that's important to note is that about 40 percent of all disenrollments are children. So this is impacting them as well. And that kind of translates to about 5 million children that have lost coverage because of this. Well, let's go from Medicaid to Medicare, where the government's investigating a $2 billion fraud scheme, and it all comes down to a whole lot of urinary catheters. Jeff, explain to us what we need to understand about what happened here. First time I've ever had to explain anything with with regard to to urinary (laughs) catheters on the air. It is um, a massive, allegedly a massive fraud uh, conducted by seven companies who started out um, charging Medicare or billing for just 14 patients for for use of these catheters, and that went up to 406,000. And these were for catheters that people were not using. And and the charges were going to Medicare, which, of course, is the health insurance company or the health insurance program for elderly Americans. So it's a massive amount of money and, um, and something that has been investigated. We should underscore that $2 billion fraud scheme there. Jeff, thank you for taking that on to explain that. It's the first time for everything here on 1A. All right, to a bit of sports news now. Iowa star guard Caitlin Clark made history this week. Just last night in a home game against Michigan, Clark broke the NCAA women's basketball scoring record with 3,528 career points. The previous record holder, WNBA star Kelsey Plum, congratulated Clark for what she's done for women's basketball. An intense competitor known for dramatic passes and thrilling three-pointers, Clark has been drawing huge crowds and selling out arenas all season. She does have one more year of eligibility left, so it's safe to say, I think, we will be watching. 
I want to turn now to some economic news. A new report for January revealed that inflation is stubbornly sticking around. Inflation fell from December, but not as much as economists were hoping. Consumer prices were still 3.1 percent higher from a year earlier, and stock markets tumbled after the release of the report, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average shedding more than 500 points. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen responded to the market's reaction on Wednesday at the Detroit Economic Club. I think it is a tremendous mistake to focus on minor fluctuations in um, and to fail to see the, the lo- longer term. Benji, what does this report mean for the economy and where it is right now? Well, the report is is closely watched because of where we are at this phase in the economic recovery from COVID and the inflation episode we have. Now, the big picture is that the news has been incredibly good the last year. Um, the labor market has been extremely strong. The last jobs report, the economy added over 350,000 jobs, which is much more than expected, even though inflation has come way down from its peak and is, has been getting close recently to the 2% target that the, that the Fed wants to see before it can cut rates. Now, with a couple of hotter inflation reports this week, um, and also partly because the job market continues to look so strong, the Fed might decide there's no hurry to uh, cut rates, which a lot of people and investors and certainly potential homeowners, you know, looking at mortgage rates are all hoping to see. Uh, So it could have an impact that way, which is why the stock market is reacting the way it is right now. Laura, there's no more single important issue for voters than the economy. What are we hearing from President Biden and the administration about where things are right now? Yeah, President Biden has certainly struggled with his economic message over the last year or so. And he's gone from, you know, talking about Bidenomics and adopting that frame uh, to I think now we're going to see the president more aggressively talk about prices and more and talk about the fact that some prices are going down. You know, the price of gas has gone down, different things that are becoming more affordable for Americans, but also things that he's done, like lowering the cost of insulin and uh, different prescription drugs that are set to uh, be lowered as well, Medicare being able to negotiate the the cost of prescription drugs. And so I think you're going to see hear him talk more about specifics uh, and acknowledging that, you know, Americans aren't happy, their perception of the economy is not a good one uh, in a way that he he hasn't in the past. But, you know, for Democrats, I would say, and what the president will really focus on heading into 2024 is going to be uh, messaging around abortion and is going to be uh, around um, threats to democracy. That's something that, that the campaign really believes is going to be extremely salient with Democratic voters. We have a couple of minutes left. I'd love to go around the horn and just get a sense of what's in each of your notebooks and what are you looking out for in following this next week coming up? Benji, why don't you kick us off? Uh, the big story I'd say that I'm waiting to see the next beat on, and certainly our reporters at Semaphore are going to be all over, is what happens to that Ukraine aid package? Uh, the big question is still where Speaker Johnson goes with it. No one seems to be sure what his plan is exactly, including in his own party. But at some point, he's going to have to tip his hand. And we will be watching closely at Semaphore. Jeff, what about you? We're still watching, as um, no doubt uh, my colleagues on this panel are, for the fallout from the special counsel's report. Um, deciding not to charge President Biden with a crime, but accusing him or describing him as as having some major memory problems. The the political impact of that is President Biden uh, continues to fundraise in the coming weeks. 
um, and and tries to rally and, and shore up his base um, in in advance of a tough and tight general election fight with his opponent, who is likely to be former President Trump. And Laura, what about you? Mine's a, a little similar to Benji's. I mean, essentially just... Are House Republicans going to pass anything? Are they even going to be able to agree to pass government funding, uh, which it ends at the end of uh, coming up pretty soon in March? So are we going to have a government shutdown? Because there is so much internal fighting. And right now they don't appear willing to govern. And many of them have admitted that themselves. We will wait and see. Our thanks this week to our guests, Laura Barone-Lopez, White House correspondent for the PBS NewsHour, Benji Sarlin, Washington Bureau Chief at Semaphore, and Reuters White House correspondent, Jeff Mason. Thank you all for joining us today. Before we turn to the global edition of the News Roundup, across the country, tributes are being paid to a broadcaster that many of you spent decades listening to, Bob Edwards, who passed away on Saturday. Edwards hosted NPR's Morning Edition from the show's start in 1979 to 2004. Edwards said he got his start working at NPR after being fired from a commercial radio network. I did pick up the phone book and and went radio, 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 called everything that said radio. Got to uh, radio repair, I think. (laughs) Um, But called NPR, didn't know much about it, and um, they were very new, and so they had no standards at all, so they hired me. He was... Bob Edwards of Morning Edition for 24 and a half years, and his was the voice we woke up to. He was a total news guy and um, I think understood the news deeply. And in some ways, you know, he sort of set the bar for how we approach stories. That was Bob Edwards, followed by Susan Stamberg and Margaret Lowe. Bob Edwards was 76. We'll be back with the biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at Progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. Time now for the global edition of the News Roundup. We've got a lot to cover. Let's get into it. In 2024, a record-breaking number of global citizens will go to the polls, and millions already have. This week, Indonesia elected a new leader in a result that's raising questions about democratic values in the world's third-largest democracy. And here in the U.S., things are heating up on the campaign trail, where one candidate's comments are raising alarm bells across the pond and leading others to question what American foreign policy will look like in 2025 and beyond. The NATO countries have to pay up. They're not paying up. They're not paying what they should. And they laugh at the stupidity of the United States of America, where we have a guy that gives $60 billion every time somebody comes and asks for it. 
We shouldn't be doing that. They're laughing at us. They think we're the stupid country because of our leadership. All that and more with you and with my guests in London. Kriti Gupta is an anchor and correspondent for Bloomberg TV and radio. Welcome back, Kriti. So much for having me. Nina Maria Potts is the director of global news coverage for Feature Story News. Thanks for joining us, Nina. Thanks for having me, too. And here with me in the studio, Anton LaGuardia is diplomatic editor at The Economist and author of War Without End, Israelis, Palestinians, and the Struggle for a Promised Land. Hi, Anton. Great to be with you, Amna. Okay, let's start now in Russia, where the prison service says opposition leader Alexei Navalny has died at the Arctic prison colony where he was serving a 19-year sentence. His team has not yet confirmed the death, but Anton, what do we know so far? Well, there's a grim inevitability about this uh, ever since uh, he was the victim of an attempted poisoning with Novichok um, nerve agent. Uh, He was saved in Germany, and he went back to Russia to um, stand trial, and he was jailed for 19 years. Um, We only know what the Russian authorities are telling us. They say that he was walking at his penal colony, which you mentioned, and collapsed, and attempts to resuscitate him have failed, uh, had failed. Uh, They didn't give a specific cause of death. The family say they've had no confirmation. Um, But uh, you've already seen reactions around the world, not least from... Uh, Navalny's own uh, wife, who said that uh, the world had to stand together to, in her words, defeat this evil. Well, back in 2020, Navalny did speak to 60 Minutes. Leslie Stahl, here's that moment. Is it, in your mind, worth your life? Because there is a big target on you, no question. I'm trying to not think about it. Because, look, I think I'm ready to sacrifice everything. Uh, for my job and for the people who are surrounding me. I'm not let them down. And I'm trying to not to reflect about it all the time. Nina, as Anton mentioned, Navalny did survive being poisoned by a nerve agent back in 2020. And in that same interview, he said that he was sure Russian President Vladimir Putin was responsible for the attack. Tell us about the kind of danger and the threat that he's been under. Well, he was incredibly brave. Um, He wasn't extradited back to Russia, as Anton has just said. He went back knowing uh, that death was almost inevitable. It was an extraordinary act of bravery. Um, He was poisoned, as Anton said, on a flight in Russia. He was flown to Germany thanks to his family's efforts to get him out. His life was saved. And then he chose to go back, uh, knowing that he couldn't do his work from outside Russia. Um, I do think it's worth just touching uh, on what this sort of says about where the GOP is now and Tucker Carlson. The timing of Navalny's death comes just a week after the Tucker Carlson interview with Putin. I think if you're the GOP or Tucker Carlson trying to pretend that Putin is a heroic conservative fighting the fight against gay rights, This should be a wake-up call and also a reminder of where far-right Republicans have positioned themselves, bearing in mind that Navalny used to be a hero to Reagan Republicans, an incredibly brave man, an incredibly sad day. Krita, give us a sense of how this story is being watched in Europe right now. 
Well, it's interesting that's coming at the same time as the Munich Security Conference, where the topic has already been what uh, spending toward NATO in particular looks like on the back of comments from President Trump, really in response to Vladimir Putin and the threat of Russia. So so the timing is really interesting here. Anton was talking about the comments from his wife, Yulia Navalny, which was coming from the Munich Security Conference, by the way. But I would also add that you're hearing some pretty strong words from German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who at the moment is hosting uh, Vladimir Zelensky out of Ukraine, saying that this is the perfect example of what we're trying to fight for, not only through NATO, but through the armed forces as well. Some comments coming out of Jens Stoltenberg from NATO, talking about the fact that NATO is standing strong in the face of some sort of threats. But the general take from Europe seems to be this is one, inevitable, two, a tragedy, and three, just underscores the need for that solidarity on the continent. Well, as you mentioned, NATO is top of the agenda at that Munich security conference that's now underway. And those words from former President Donald Trump on the campaign trail really sent shudders through Europe. Here he is at a rally in South Carolina on Saturday, speaking about the president of a, quote, big country. NATO was busted until I came along. I said, everybody's going to pay. They said, well, if we don't pay, are you still going to protect us? I said, absolutely not. And here is part two of those comments. If we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. Anton, let's underscore here. NATO it consists of 31 nations. It was formed during the Cold War. All of the nations are in Europe except for the U.S. and Canada. And Donald Trump has made similar comments about military spending by NATO members before, including when he was president. Why are these comments right now so particularly worrying to European allies? Because they are worse than anything he said in public before. Uh, that phrase you just heard, uh, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. Uh, to a NATO ally that was deemed uh, delinquent in his words, uh, cuts at the core of NATO, which is Article 5, and the belief that an attack on one country is an attack on all. Uh, now there are different grades of allies, some will presumably who will be protected and some who will not. And it also comes as he is ahead in the polls, and it seems to confirm what people like John Bolton have said about his views in private, which is that uh, he would want to leave NATO. So it, it all creates a sense that under Donald Trump, America would stop underwriting the security of Europe. Well, it also all comes as the Senate passed a $95.3 billion foreign aid bill that includes $60 billion for Ukraine. The bill is now set up for a major fight in the House and global pressure, it's fair to say, is mounting. Yesterday, the NATO Secretary General urged U.S. lawmakers to pass the bill, warning that China is watching. And the British Foreign Secretary warned that the bill needs to pass for the sake of global security. That last comment got quite a reaction from a Trump ally in the House, Marjorie Taylor Greene, on UK's Sky News. I really don't care what David Cameron has to say. I think that's rude name-calling, um, and I don't appreciate that type of language. And David Cameron needs to worry about his own country, and frankly, he can kiss my ass. Nina, it uh, is about to be two years since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Just how vital is that aid right now? Oh, deep frustration in Europe and, of course, in Ukraine. Uh, the apparent fear that's paralyzing Republicans in the grip of Donald Trump. Uh, Zelensky in Europe turning to France and Germany in utter desperation. Uh, the thing that European allies and Ukrainians just can't understand is that more broadly, U.S. lawmakers 
do support Ukraine. There just aren't enough Republicans willing to go against Trump to get it through. And part of that gridlock, it has to be said, is that on the other side of the coin, uh, some Democrats don't support the aid for Israel that's uh, baked into the package. The Baltics, uh, the UK, Poland, all very nervous begging Congress, appealing personally uh, to the House Speaker to approve the uh, the aid package, saying it's a question of U.S. credibility. And, and why is it so urgent now? You, you just mentioned it's been two years since the war started. Ukraine's running out of ammunition. The numbers are very stark. They're down to 2,000 rounds a day from 7,000 rounds. That's a big reduction. The Russians are getting more weapons, some from North Korea. Uh, and Ukraine has lost so many troops that it's also running out of trained personnel. Just to be clear, the aid doesn't just... Uh, all get handed to, to Ukraine in one big lump sum. It, it basically goes to US contractors for purchasing gear that gets sent. Uh, and the money is also desperately needed to maintain uh, existing military hardware. Ukraine's increasingly on the defensive. Uh, it's struggling to, to uh, conduct long-range missile attacks on strategic Russian targets. Um, and it desperately needs that funding. Well, as we've heard, rebukes to Trump's comments were swift and strong. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said that they put the U.S. and NATO soldiers' lives at risk, and President Biden called them, quote, appalling. No other president in our history has ever bowed down to a Russian dictator. Let me say this as clearly as I can. I never will. For God's sake, it's dumb, it's shameful, it's dangerous, it's un-American. We should also note a comment here from Robert, who just wrote in to say, I never thought I'd hear any ex-president or candidate for president, especially a Republican, say they would encourage Russia to attack our allies. But, Creedy, generally speaking, what kind of reaction have we been hearing from other NATO member states? Well, it's been a pretty shock from a lot of those NATO member states. If you actually look at, for example, what uh, some of them are talking about in terms of just whether or not they can hit that 2% GDP target, it's pretty interesting because they're saying that even though they haven't historically, they plan to, if not now and certainly in the next 18 months. And that's a promise that has been made from the NATO representatives across the continent. It's also worth mentioning that even within the GOP, in uh, the United States as well. Mike Pence, for example, the former vice president uh, serving under President Trump, had also quoted, even in response to uh, Alexei Navalny's reported death, that there is no room for Putin apologists. Mm-hmm. And that's something that a sentiment that is um, shared by a lot of GOP representatives as well as some in Europe. In a recent interview with conservative figure Tucker Carlson, Russian pre- President Vladimir Putin did rule out an invasion of a NATO country when asked. Only in one case, if Poland attacks Russia. Why? Because we have no interest in Poland, Latvia or anywhere else. Why would we do that? We simply don't have any interest. Anton, first of all, it was a remarkable thing to see this long and wide-ranging interview, if you call it that, more of a platform for Mr. Putin to offer his views. What did you take away from that? Well, it was a very soft interview in which uh, Tucker Carlson essentially gave uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, an open mic to hold forth, and, and fold forth he did for, uh, you know, for a half an hour on the, um, you know, origins of Russia in uh, in Ukraine, supposedly, full of half truths, full of historical inaccuracies, blaming Poland uh, for, uh, you know, bringing upon the invasion of the Nazis, forgetting that the Soviet Union also invaded Poland. Um, but the, perhaps the most remarkable thing about it all was uh, how after the interview, even Putin himself complained that the interview had been too soft, that he'd been asked no question, no hard questions. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I just look forward to Tucker Carlson as he does his little videos of life in Moscow, discovering that Moscow has a subway system and has supermarkets, whether he's going to take us to a, you know, an Arctic prison, perhaps, and, you know, see what life is like there. Well, sticking with Russia, but turning to space news, on Wednesday, House Intelligence Committee Chair Mike Turner, who's a Republican from Ohio, warned of a potential threat from Russia. New U.S. intelligence shows Russia's developing nuclear capabilities in space, which may threaten communications, military, or other satellites. The U.S., Russia, and China can already attack satellites. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 specifically bans the use of nuclear weapons in space, and Russia, the U.S., and many other nations are are a party to it. So, Anton, what do we know about what Russia has been developing and what kind of impact it could have? Well, it is all still a bit of a mystery. It seems to be either a nuclear weapon deployed in space to attack satellites or a nuclear-powered satellite that would attack other satellites in space. And there's a, there's a big difference between those two. Uh, John Kirby, the White House um, spokesman, Uh, said it was an anti-satellite weapon, therefore not a weapon to attack targets on Earth, which uh, people, readers will be pleased to hear, uh, but is a breach of the Outer Space Treaty, which suggests some kind of nuclear weapon. Now, um, there was a good reason that people banned nuclear weapons in space, because they make no sense and they cause great chaos. It would be uh, you know, an act of grievous self-harm to detonate a nuclear device in space because you would not only destroy your enemy's satellites but your own uh, within line of sight and because radiation is carried uh, across the Van Allen belts, it would destroy satellites on the other side of the world. Therefore, and not least the Chinese satellites, so the Russians would be destroying Chinese satellites if they did this. And so experts scratch their head and you still hear some of them say, Really, this might be about uh, some kind of nuclear-powered device. There is one possible rationale for having a nuclear device in space, which is that ICBMs can't reach geosynchronous orbit, which is the orbit around which satellites uh, orbit the Earth once a day, therefore appear fixed in the sky, and is hugely important for things like early warning communications and, indeed, your satellite television service because they're always above your head. Nina, as we mentioned, we first learned about this because of Congressman Turner. He went public asking the Biden administration to declassify this information. What do we know about why he might have done that? Well, I think it, it came on the back of um, questions over the the president's memory as well, which uh, the timing of um, uh, this push in Congress to declassify this information. I mean, it was all it all sort of happened at, at roughly the same time. I think the key point here is that the U.S. has been very worried about its vulnerability in space for a very long time. Congress has been warning about the uh, space race uh, between China and Russia. Uh, and the U.S. uh, for years, and it's been a hot topic of debate. Uh, Since the start of the Russian invasion, there have been a lot of satellites gathering intelligence on Russia's military movements. Uh, So there's not just, uh, you know, comms satellites uh, in space. It's also detecting satellites um, that might come under Russian attack. Uh, The fact that Russia and China are capable of destroying satellites in space isn't in any uh, doubt. So, uh, you know, 
there's certainly a lot of pressure on the White House at the moment. Um, questions about President Biden's uh, own uh, capabilities. Um, it's, a, it's an extremely sensitive time, I think, in Washington. Well, sticking with Russia, President Vladimir Putin had this to say in an interview with State TV when he was asked whether a Biden or a Trump presidency would be better off for his country. Biden He's a more experienced, predictable person, a politician of the old school. But we will work with any U.S. leader in whom the American people put their faith. Nina, in the scheme of Putin trying to influence the U.S. election this year, how does his answer strike you? Well, it took a lot of people by surprise, um, especially after Trump's latest uh, NATO comments that we talked about earlier, which seemed to give Putin free reign. Uh, The assumption being that a disruptive Trump is always good for Russia. Uh, Putin's got a record of commenting on presidents and presidential candidates. Um, The fact that he prefers Biden suddenly as an experienced person, uh, saying that he's predictable, an old-style politician, Uh, contrast with comments that he made back in 2015 about Trump uh, being bright and talented. Um, There's obviously the fact that Biden doesn't share the same level of admiration for Putin, um, but it's very difficult to know what Putin is really playing at. Uh, No one can, I think, really dissect Putin's mind or or his mind play. (laughs) Well, Kriti, Russia also declared this week that Estonian Prime Minister Kaya Kalos, as well as the Estonian Secretary of State and the Lithuanian Culture Minister, are on their most wanted list for destroying or damaging Soviet monuments. What does that mean for Estonia and Lithuania? So it was something that was kind of in the cards for, for a little bit now. Back in 2022, in the invasion upon Ukraine, uh, the Estonian prime minister had just outright said that they would dismantle 200 to 400 Soviet-era monuments, viewing them as propaganda tools uh, from their former uh, from the former Soviet Union. Now, these allegations or, or this kind of wanted list is in response to them carrying out that vision. And it's not just the Estonian prime minister. It's members of parliament in, in Latvia and Lithuania as well, not to mention uh, the home secretary of Estonia as well. And again, it comes back to this history where you do see that Estonia used to be a part of the Soviet Union. So they're really trying to break away from it. But it also comes at a time when there are troops being built up on the border alongside Estonia, Lithuania and Latvia. Uh, You asked Anton earlier whether uh, Putin can be taken at his word that he's not interested in the Baltic states. Uh, The troop kind of amalgamation would suggest otherwise. Um, It's also worth mentioning that Estonia and some of these Baltic states just have such an ethnic Russian population that still exists. Minorities, yes, but one that still exists. So Estonia, for example, 25% of their population is still Russian. So the fact that Estonia's prime minister has been put on this wanted list is one something, again, that was put, that was kind of inevitable given some of the commentary that she had made um, and stark uh, protest against the war in Ukraine, but also one that has kind of come as a result of her acting on that promise to get rid of 200 to 400 Soviet-era monuments. Anton, European countries seem to be bracing themselves for a longer-term future of Russian provocation after the Ukraine invasion. Is that a fair assessment? Is that how you see it? Yes, indeed. And the warnings of... um uh, how stark that would be are becoming more um, intense. So you, you're seeing a series of governments saying it is possible 
that Russia will test uh, NATO's Article 5 uh, in the coming years. Uh, three to five years is what you're hearing increasingly from the Danes, the Brits, uh, and others. And the countries of the Baltic states have a particular reason to worry because they're small and because they're so close. And uh, there is this history that they were once part of the Soviet Union. And therefore, these implicit claims of Russian sovereignty over uh, the Baltic states uh, in such accusations against Kayakalas, uh, I think, are intended to rattle and sow trouble. One more thing, Kayakalas is still a candidate to be uh, the next Secretary General of NATO. Also, I want to ask you, Anton, about on Monday, uh, France condemning an online disinformation campaign by Russia. France's foreign ministry said at least 193 websites had been set up to manipulate Western countries supporting Ukraine. What should we know and understand about this campaign? Well, first of all, that it's part of a series of uh, alleged Russian interference efforts in Western elections. This particular set uh, is interesting in that it seems to involve um, sort of clone websites of existing websites uh, intended to fool people into thinking that, that whatever information is put out through them is genuine. And it comes uh, at a time when two things are happening. Uh, one is that the um, uh, the sort of re-solidification of the Weimar Triangle, uh, France, Germany, and Poland, now that Poland has changed governments, is a thing that worries the Russians. And you're also in the run-up to the European Parliament elections in June. And so these, this network of websites is supposedly ready and primed to be activated to create a wave of disinformation uh, when the Kremlin chooses to do so. Let's move now to the war between Israel and Hamas. Gaza's health ministry says today that the number of people killed in the blockaded territory since October 7th has now surpassed 28,000, more than two-thirds of those, excuse me, women and children. The Committee to Protect Journalists says at least 88 journalists and media workers have been killed. This week, an Al Jazeera reporter and a camera operator were seriously injured in Rafah. The Israeli military has not yet commented on the attack. Israel says more than 1,200 Israelis have been killed since October 7th, most on that day when Hamas brutally attacked communities in the south of that country, and about half of the approximately 250 Israeli hostages taken by Hamas remain captive. Well, Gaza is home to 2.3 million people, and officials say more than half are now sheltering in the southern city of Rafah, now a focus of Israeli attacks. Khalid al-Tawil fled to Rafah from northern Gaza. It was an Apache firing with a really loud noise. The F-16s fired, the Cobra, the drone, all kinds of aircraft. Terror, terror, so much terror. They wiped out mosques, people, and displaced people. They kept saying, go to Rafa, go to Rafa. And people came here, and then you target them? The United Nations aid chief said military operations in the area could lead to, quote, slaughter in Gaza. The city was once designated a safe zone by Israeli defense forces. Nina, what do we know about what the latest is on the ground there? Oh, well, as you just heard, I mean, the situation in Rafah is terrifying. Israeli forces are preparing to enter Rafah. Um, it's not just the UN aid chief uh, warning of slaughter. The Biden administration has upped its warnings uh, to Israel, uh, demanding a plan to keep people safe. Uh, fears of a potentially massive loss of life. Um, and that's also sparked more tensions between Israel and its neighbors, namely Jordan, uh, which has been warning against an attack on Rafah, Egypt. 
Egypt saying that it's not going to facilitate the displacement of Palestinians across the border. Uh, there's a profound sense of foreboding, uh, which will be even harder, I think, for the uh, US and Israel to get beyond. Um, Israel insisting that it has to move into Rafah because it's hiding Hamas militants and troops. Uh, it says it does have a plan to evacuate civilians, but each week thousands, as we, as you, as you said, are dying in Gaza. Uh, Netanyahu uh, insisting that Rafah is sheltering the equivalent of a quarter of ISIS in Iraq, and he keeps talking about total uh, annihilation uh, of terrorists. Uh, he says it's the only way to eradicate uh, Hamas. So this moment has been brewing for weeks, but it is truly, truly alarming. Kriti, we should mention Israeli forces were able to rescue two Israeli hostages in Rafah earlier this week. But as the fighting has dragged on, there are clearly rifts that are emerging within Israel about how to free the remaining hostages. What can you tell us about that? There definitely are, and a lot of it comes from, as well, the international pressure that you're seeing being placed on Israel right now, whereas, say, uh, in the fallout of October 7th, there was perhaps a lot more support given the military action by the IDF in Rafah, in the Gaza Strip as a whole. You're seeing a lot of pressure specifically around the humanitarian response, and, and that's really starting to be where you see a lot of these rifts emerge, as well as how far the Israeli military and, and Benjamin Netanyahu himself will go for the release of these hostages at what cost, given, again, that they're dealing not just with international pressure, uh, but condemnation from the United Nations as well. And Anton, as we've seen negotiations now mediated by the U.S. and Qatar have continued in Cairo to try to bring an end to the fighting. We know Hamas has demanded the complete withdrawal of all Israeli forces from Gaza. It seems like those talks hit a roadblock on Wednesday when Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called those demands delusional. Has there been a collapse in those peace talks? It seems to be going very slowly at the moment, although it hasn't completely ended, though he uh, he withdrew the delegation from Cairo. There still seems to be some kind of conversation uh, going on. By the way, it's, you know, it's more difficult now because it's difficult to get to the you know, Hamas leadership in Gaza in the tunnels. So uh, it, communications are, are complicated. Um, but it is uh, it, one of the things worth saying here is that there is a great hope in the United States that once you get a ceasefire and a prolonged pause to enable this exchange of hostages and prisoners, if that happens, you might then begin to get a change in the mindset and begin to be able to talk about the day after in Gaza. And quite a big edifice of a possible peace plan, uh, a Biden vision of what regional peace might look like, uh, depends on getting the cessation soon. Let's move now to Southeast Asia. In Indonesia, a former general appears to have won the country's presidential election. Prabowo Subianto is currently Indonesia's defense minister and a three-time presidential candidate. Unofficial tallies have him with more than 57 percent of the vote in a three-person race. Here he is speaking to supporters on Wednesday night. We will be the president, the vice president, and the government for all Indonesian people. So, Kriti, start us off here. Who is Prabowo Subianto? What should we know about him? Well, this is a man who has run some very polarizing presidential campaigns. He's someone who, uh, at 72 years old, has spent uh, some time in the military as well, has dealt with a variety of allegations. But I think the thing you really need to know is that this is a man who really signals continuity from uh, the previous 
Indonesian president when it comes to things like infrastructure spend, when it comes to things like even growing uh, e-commerce in one of the largest economies in Southeast Asia, despite some of the allegations that he has, and despite the fact that his party doesn't actually have a coalition vote, he is still seen as being the front runner. Now, we don't get the full results until, I believe, next month, but uh, the fact that he is kind of the symbol of continuity, I think, is the takeaway here. Well, the New York Times has been reporting that civil rights leaders and organizations inside the country have warned of a dark winter for human rights and democracy because of Prabowo's past, also because of the implicit support he appeared to have from the current term-limited president, Joko Widodo. President Joko's 36-year-old son is the vice presidential candidate on the ticket. Anton, what is the significance of this presidential election for the future of Indonesia, but also for the world? Well, I think it uh, comes into two buckets. First of all, is in the quality of democracy in Indonesia itself. There's been an erosion of civil liberties. Opposition groups have felt under increasing pressure, restrictions on press freedoms, uh, and so on. And Indonesia was one of the great hopes for democracy in the Muslim world. It's not only the third largest democracy, but it's also a very large Muslim country. So uh, you know, its importance is uh, it can't be exaggerated. Then in geopolitical terms, I would say there is, um, you know, it is part of the first island chain uh, that girdles China and uh, the United States has been very interested in making sure that the countries on that island chain running from Japan in the north through the uh, Taiwan, Philippines and out to Indonesia and Malaysia uh, should be friendly to the West uh, because that is a form of uh, constraining uh, China. It also controls the approaches to uh, Australia, which is increasingly becoming a platform for power projection for the United States. Uh, and generally, uh, you know, uh, Indonesia is this huge archipelago with many different peoples and ethnicities, a history of um, uh, ethnic strife uh, and insurgencies and you know, instability anywhere along that archipelago will be worrying to all its neighbors. And Kriti, put a finer point on this for us. When it comes to Prabowo Subianto, what has he said that he would do as president? Well, he's talked a lot about uh, developing exports oriented a commodity sector. So I'm really taking this from like a business lens. Specifically, he's talking again about really in expanding some of the infrastructure that is already put in, in put place uh, by his predecessor as well. Something like a $32 billion new capital in Kalimantan. So there's a lot that he's pledging to do in addition to things like free meals, milk to school children. Um, in previous years, he's talked about slashing taxes. So those are just some of the things he's talked about in terms of policy. Let's head now to South Asia and first stop in Pakistan. A six-party alliance appears poised to form Pakistan's next government after nearly a week of political drama following the country's February 8th election. It looks now like former Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif will lead the coalition as Prime Minister. But his reappointment is likely a blow to millions of Pakistanis who voted for independence backed by the country's most popular leader, the jailed politician Imran Khan. So Nina, what does the road ahead look like for Shabazz Sharif, for this coalition government, and for Imran Khan? 
Well, we've just opened a bureau in Pakistan just ahead of the election, which, is, as you said, delivered a surprise upset. Imran Khan's candidates uh, won the most votes, but he can't, of course, be prime minister because he's been jailed for another 14 years. And it makes, I think, the transition extremely difficult uh, and um, a sense that the winners might not be able to rule with any real ability or authority and that this coalition uh, is doomed. Um, everyone expected Pakistan military establishment uh, to, to win the election. Um, voters, I think, triggered a, a real shockwave. Um, many of the PTI candidates, uh, Imran Khan's party, many of them ran as independents. Uh, and, and the fact that he can't be prime minister, I think, is going to uh, deal, you know, it's, it's going to fuel frustration. Um, I don't think a coalition government is terribly good news for Pakistan's economic problems or for its security. Um, and I think probably just lastly, a lot of people, even experts, were very surprised by the outcome. I mean, particularly because uh, the expectation was that it was going to be a low uh, turnout. Uh, so yeah, heading towards a coalition, but things I think are likely to stay very tense. Uh, and it's a very fragile moment in Pakistani politics. Nina, we should we should underscore here, Imran Khan is immensely popular. He and his party have basically accused the alliance of being, quote, mandate thieves. And they're saying that election irregularities are what prevented them from winning an outright majority. What options do Imran Khan and, and his party, the PTI, have now? I think short of um, dramatic protests, none. I mean, every effort w was made to su to suppress them, uh, including, of obviously, his his jail term, and and um, you know they even banned um, the use of um, the electoral symbol, which was a cricket bat, on on ballots. Um, so I'm I'm not confident at all that they have any options uh, before them, and I, and I think it's uh, yeah, it's it's very much a situation where the most popular man is in jail uh, and and his his party has not uh, been able to, to come out on top and be able to rule with the authority it should. Well, let's move now to India, where tens of thousands of Indian farmers traveling on trucks and trolleys loaded with food and other supplies began marching towards the capital. <laughs> The government has gone back on its promises. We are asking for farm loan waivers and a minimum guaranteed price for our crop. That's why we are going back to the capital, New Delhi. That was Indian farmer Raghubir Singh. Farmers and police clashed at the city border with police firing tear gas and water cannons to prevent them from entering. Kriti, we saw similar protests back in 2020. Indian farmers are demanding guaranteed crop prices. Why is this issue coming up again? Well, it's coming up again because the way that kind of farming in, in India works, especially in these two regions, Punjab and Haryana, is that the government basically subsidizes them. There's an MSP, which is basically a minimum price that is set for these crops, um, which basically ensures the income for a lot of farmers and also ensures income for food security. Back in 2020 and 2021, uh, you did see these massive protests in response to government Modi's um, party where he talked about removing some of those subsidies and actually creating a little bit of a free market 
around this pricing, which meant that farmers didn't have to go through the government to sell uh, their their crops. They could do that on the free market and directly to bulk buyers. What that does, though, is drop the crop prices. Um, since then, the BJP uh, leader, Prime Minister Modi, has pulled back on those laws, but it looks like he's also made promises about things like loan forgiveness, for example, um, and even compensating for the lives lost during those 2020 and 2021 protests. But um, these farmers are saying it's um, not happening and the progress is not happening fast enough. And not only does that progress not happening on the promises that Modi made, but that they still want higher prices when it comes to uh, the crops that they're providing. Nina, we should mention all of this is unfolding as elections are expected in India later this spring. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi was in the United Arab Emirates, and he spent time there giving basically a stump speech for his re-election. And in that speech, he described his years in power as pushing for, quote, minimum government and maximum governance. What sort of political pressure do these protests put on Modi? Well, I think one of the interesting things to watch for over the next few months, and remember the Indian election lasts several weeks, and uh, it's quite a long and drawn out and complicated uh, process. Um, but one of the, I think, fascinating things to watch is is, is what setbacks Modi will face. Um, and certainly these latest protests, um, you know, is one of them. Um, but I, I mean, I was in India for, for weeks over the summer and uh, just ahead of the G20, and I was very, very struck by the expectation that, that Modi will will win. And um, um, there's no question, really, that the opposition um, has any chance at all. I mean, we've seen uh, ethnic tensions. Modi's been in- accused of, of fueling those tensions with the BJP uh, in recent months and, and weeks. And um, certainly uh, he's battling violence in, in several uh, states. Um, but uh, but I think um, you know the notion that India's economy is rising, uh, that uh, he's succeeded in in producing an India that counters China. Um, my sense is that um, these will amount to smaller setbacks, but that Modi uh, will most likely win. Guyanese President Mohamed Irfan Ali has accused Venezuela's leader, Nicolas Maduro, of violating international law after satellite images published last week by the Center for Strategic and International Studies showed that Venezuela has increased its military presence near the disputed Essequibo region. The Essequibo region, which makes up nearly two-thirds of Guyana, has been disputed between the two countries for over a century. And one final stop in Europe. Yesterday, Greece voted to pass a landmark bill legalizing same-sex marriage and granting full parental rights to same-sex couples. The legislation created heated debate in the Orthodox Christian country. But the vote was ushered in to the sounds of cheers from LGBTQ plus activists watching on screens in the streets. Well, we have more than a few minutes left, and I'd love to go around to hear what each of you has been watching at what your notebooks contain right now and what you think some of the big stories coming up this next week will be. Anton? Well, the whole question of European security is going to be important as uh, as uh, Munich uh, talks unfold. Um, uh, we'll have to see what the fallout from Navalny is. And for me, uh, I'll also be watching quite closely 
uh, what the whether you get a hostage deal and perhaps the beginnings of something bigger in the Middle East. I, I don't believe it'll happen. I think it, you know at the best you're going to get a hostage deal, but um, you know there is quite a lot of pressure on now to get some kind of movement in Palestinian statehood. Tell us a little bit more about that. That is an important point, especially given Prime Minister Netanyahu's recent comments on the possibility of a two-state solution. What's your take on that? Well, um, the uh, uh, what the Biden administration would like to do is to use the pause to talk about the day after. Nothing's going to happen the day after. Unless, you know, you're not going to get reconstruction. You're going to get peace peacekeeping forces unless the Israelis make some kind of commitment to Palestinian statehood. And in exchange for that, the Saudis would do normalization and the Americans would give, in turn, Saudis a defense treaty, Um, all of which looks great on paper, but in practice comes down to whether you can get a credible Palestinian government, whether this Israeli government or a future one will uh, uh, be willing to go for some kind of Palestinian state, which looks very difficult, and uh, last thing, whether uh, probably Biden gets reelected. So I think this is all 2025 and beyond. All big stories to watch this next week and certainly beyond. Nina, what about you? What are you keeping an eye on? Well, I'm going to mention Africa, um, partly because I wanted to give a shout out to our full-time teams um, in Sudan and also Nigeria. I think we're one of the few news organizations that still has a full-time bureau in Sudan, um, and they've had to flee to Port Sudan uh, to escape the violence. And of course, it's impossible to get near Khartoum. But as a humanitarian disaster uh, gets worse and worse, I think Sudan will definitely be front of mind. And Nigeria, security continues to to uh, deteriorate and uh, it's becoming kind of the kidnapping center. Again, very difficult for our teams to move around without security. So although Africa isn't perhaps top of the agenda next week, I did want to mention that that's very much on my mind. We thank your teams for being there. We hope they stay safe. We're grateful for their reporting. Kriti, what about you? What are you watching? Well, I'll just underscore Anton's point about the Red Sea, but perhaps with a different angle. Um, There was a lot of reports this week about how those military operations between the United States um, on the Houthi rebels are actually taking place. Things like cyber attacks, for example, being planned um, on uh, Houthi vessels as a means of kind of targeting Iran directly. But even the Houthis have accidentally misfired on cargo ships that were bound for Iran as well this week. So there is some, it feels like, getting your uh, wires crossed on the Houthi side and in terms of kind of where Iran really wants to put their backing. We know that between Israel and Hezbollah, the tensions are rising there as well. So so for me, the focus is on Iran next week. A big thank you to our panelists for their analysis and expertise this hour in London. That was Kriti Gupta of Bloomberg TV and Radio, Nina Maria Potts, the Director of Global News Coverage for Feature Story News, and Anton LaGuardia, Diplomatic Editor at The Economist and author of War Without End, Israelis, Palestinians, and the Struggle for a Promised Land. Thanks to you all for being here. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer, with help from Kellen Quigley and Kennedy Wright. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand. And Barb Angiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Amna Nawaz of the PBS NewsHour. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.
Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from Wondery with the new podcast, Black History for Real, weaving Black history's most overlooked figures back into their rightful place in culture and the world at large. Listen to Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.